I know what you're thinking. This guy looks old enough to be that. I, I love this church. I can't tell you. Every time I'm here, I say that, and uh, I just love uh, being with you. There's such a great spirit about this church, and this being Pastor Appreciation Month, I got to tell you, I who lives in Fort Collins, love and appreciate the pastors and the staff at Plum Creek uh, Community Church. What a great thing. This has been so cool for me um, because I have a lot of friends who attend this church. Some friends that I pastored in Colorado, bless you, I pastored in uh, Colorado Springs for a number of years, and I have, there's folks that drive up from Colorado Springs to be a part of this church, and then I have friends that move to Castle Rock and come here, and so um, I feel so connected to this place, and it's a great joy to be with you. Doug asked me to uh, share with you just a little bit about, of an update of what we're doing. If you were here, the last time I was here, I talked quite a bit about a church we're planting on the north side of Fort Collins. Uh, the north side of Fort Collins is an area that is the most underserved and neediest population of our city, really. And we're planting a church with the vision to go to the darkest places and uh, serve the most underserved people in our community. And we're excited about that. We've been meeting in a coffee shop in downtown uh, for this year since January, which is exciting. We've been meeting there every week, but we're excited that our building is nearing the point where we can move into that building. We will be in the building that used to be home to the only strip club in Fort Collins. And so we're planting a church. I actually have some pictures. That's our new sign. No, 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 that's the old sign. That's the old sign. A hunt club was the name of the, of the strip club. That's the inside. I've never seen the inside of a strip club until in all my rebellious years. I knew God would strike me dead if I went into a strip club. So the first time I walked in there, um, man, it wrecked my life in a really great way. And then we've got a couple pictures. That's uh, our new kind of temporary sign on the side of our building. And then the inside is coming along. We've knocked out. Um, so, oh, there it is over there. Uh, got rid of the poles and the state. We actually still have the poles. We're trying to figure out what to do with those poles. <laughs> That's just a reminder. Believe me, we've had a lot of requests for them, which is really weird. But we, uh, we're going to keep them as a reminder because our building, what we see is that our building is a metaphor. Our, that building is a dump. It's been neglected for a lot of years. There's so much that's been out of code. It's taking us a lot longer to remodel it, costing a lot more money to remodel. But it's a metaphor for what God can do in the lives of people. And, and the mess that we can sometimes make of our lives, God has a way of making something new and beautiful out of that mess. And so we're excited. We're, we'll hope to move into that building uh, late January, maybe early February. Uh, to be meeting in there. We're having to do it in phases just because of costs and some of the things there, bringing it up to code. But we're excited to move into the neighborhood where we're going to be and really begin serving. We've got a, a commercial kitchen we're going to develop in there that will teach culinary classes, job skills training, feed people who are hungry, uh, and various outreaches like that. So thank you for your prayers for us. I know a lot of you have been praying for us, and uh, last time we were here, you helped us, you invested in us. Um, Doug and Beth have been some of the most wonderful friends we've had 
uh, for a lot of years, and it's been great to be able to call Doug and, and uh, ask him questions and have him speak into my life as we journey through this church planting thing. So thank you so much for praying for us and continue to do so. We'll keep you posted on what's happening there. Um, just thought I'd tell you, I got a text yesterday. Uh, from a guy, a new friend that's connected with our church. He uh, was part of an outlaw motorcycle gang. Um, rough looking guy, tattoos all over his face. He's got two snakes that come down his cheeks and almost meet under his nose. Tattoos. We had lunch the other day in Old Town and we had some looks. Uh, sitting in the restaurant, but an awesome story of what's happening in his life. He texted me yesterday to let me know that he's praying for us this weekend. And uh, that's just a pretty cool thing, at least to me. If you knew him, you'd know that's a pretty cool thing that he's praying for us. And so I'm excited to be able to wrap up the series that you all have been in for the month of October. And I love the series you're in called She. Uh, as our nation focuses on pink and women and women's health and the things surrounding uh, women, uh, you guys have been looking at women in the Old Testament. I know you've talked about Esther, and I know you've talked about Rahab, and uh, I'm excited to continue that series. When Doug told me the series, I thought, you know, this would probably be a good opportunity for me to share with you everything I know about women. So if you bow your heads, we'll close. <laughs> so, <laughs> who, who can know these things? Who can know? Don't understand but certainly glad I have a great one in my life. She'll be at the next service, my wife Joy. Um, but I am going to talk about a woman in the Old Testament that we don't talk about very often, or at least I can't recall uh, ever hearing a sermon about this particular woman. And I know for a fact that I've never given a sermon or a talk about this particular story in Scripture. Um, like Rahab, uh, you talked about her a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she also is one of the very few women that is listed in Matthew chapter 1, which outlines the genealogy leading up to Jesus, a very significant thing, particularly to Jews. Matthew was a gospel that was written to an audience of Jews, and it's very important to articulate that lineage through David up to Jesus. And there's very few women mentioned, but this is one of the women who is mentioned. So if you want to follow along with me, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 says, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And here's the record. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, it's interesting. There's no mention by Matthew, of Abraham's mother, or Isaac's mother, or Jacob's mother, or Judah's mother, but he makes special note and gives special attention to mention the mother of Perez and Zerah, and that is Tamar. So who is this woman, Tamar, and, and what, what has she done that merits her being recorded in the genealogy of Jesus? Well, look with me at Genesis chapter 38, and we'll see where, uh, where we first are introduced to Tamar. Genesis 38, verse 1, it says, at, the time, at that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with the man of Adullam, named Herah. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. 
he married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. Don't you love that name? I just always think of like, time for dinner, Ur. It's a weird name. Anyway, she, she conceived again, gave birth to a son named, and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Sheila. It's actually Sheila, but still, maybe it wasn't a female name back then. Who knows? It was at Kizib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now, I'm going to just tell you the story. You ready for a crazy story? This is a crazy, twisted story recorded in Scripture. I'm just going to tell it to you rather than read it for a couple of reasons. One, because there's some cultural things that we need to unpack a little bit so we understand what's happening. And also because I can tell it in a way that is less graphic than if you actually read it in the Bible. Some of you are like more interested in reading the Bible now than you've been in a long time. And that's good. You can read the story for yourself, but I'm just going to tell it, okay? So who is Judah? Judah is one of 12 sons that were born to Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to what? To Israel. All right? So when you hear about the 12 tribes of Israel, it, it are these 12 boys, these 12 sons. Judah is fourth in line from the oldest, Okay? Now, the interesting thing about this particular chapter 38 in Genesis is that it almost seems like an interruption to the story of Joseph. Joseph is a much more popular story. In fact, the story of Joseph is one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. And right in the middle of this story of Joseph, we have this, what seems like a diversion to talk to us about Judah. Now, Joseph is also one of the 12 sons um, of Jacob. But Joseph was the firstborn child of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, okay? Now, how many of you men would agree with me that polygamy is the dumbest idea ever, okay? I mean, I thank God for my wife. That's two wives? That's insane to try to manage that whole deal. But if you're going to have two wives, which is illegal, by the way, if you're going to have two wives you better not identify one of them as a favorite. I mean, that's just crazy, but Jacob did. His favorite wife was Rachel, and therefore Joseph was his favorite son. And he made no secret to all the rest of his kids that Joseph was his favorite. In fact, he gave Joseph a pretty cool coat, and they hated it. In fact, every time they saw Joseph wearing that coat, it was a reminder that dad loved him more than dad loves us. They hated him. He had some dreams that made it worse. And finally, these brothers decide, let's kill Joseph. They're going to kill him. They throw him in a pit. Many of you know the story. But one of the brothers comes up with the idea instead of killing him, I mean, we would get rid of him for sure, and that's what we want. But instead of killing him, what if we sold him? What if we were to sell him? Then we get rid of him and we make some money. You know who it was who came up with that idea? Judah, the guy we're looking at today. So they sell him. They sell Joseph to a group of Midianites who are passing through. They take him to Egypt and they sell him again to a man named Potiphar. And the story in chapter 39 picks up with Joseph working in Potiphar's house. But we have this little diversion in chapter 38 of Judah. 
So what happens is, after a period of time, Judah, it says, leaves his family. He leaves his father, leaves his brothers, leaves the culture, the spiritual values uh, that he has been raised in, and he goes to a Canaanite area to hang out and live with a friend. Now, he doesn't go there to be a light. He goes there to party. He goes there to take in all of the Canaanite culture, and Canaan was a very perverse In fact, prostitution was a part of the way they worshiped their gods. It was an idolatrous, pagan culture. And and Judah goes there to live. And it's not long until Judah sees a Canaanite woman, which he's forbidden to marry because of how perverse that culture was. But he sees a Canaanite woman, and the actual Hebrew language in the Old Testament indicates that it's primarily just this physical attraction. So he sees a hot Canaanite woman, says, let's get married. They get married, start having kids. They have three boys, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. So when Ur, the oldest son, reaches the age where it's time to be married, Judah goes out to find him a wife, which is pretty common in that culture. Sounds weird to us. How many of you teenagers are thankful it's not our culture where dad finds your spouse, all right? But in that time it was. And so Judah goes out to find a spouse, to find a wife for Ur. He finds another Canaanite girl by the name of Tamar, and the two of them get married. Scripture says that Ur was so wicked that God himself just took him out. I mean, you can read the story. He just, it doesn't say what he did or what characterized his wickedness or exactly how he died. It just says he was so wicked, God, God ended his life, took him out. All right, so, and it must have been early in the marriage because Tamar has no kids. All right, she's not pregnant. She doesn't have any kids. So she's left a widow without a child. So Judah goes to the second son, Onan, and says, okay, it's time for you to do your brotherly duty. You need to marry Tamar and give her a kid, which also sounds crazy to us. Okay, but in that culture, it was very common. In fact, it was expected and would eventually actually be codified in Mosaic law. that if a man died and left his wife a widow without children, it was the responsibility of the brother to marry her and give her a child. Because that child, preferably it would be a son in that culture, that son then would carry on the name of of the brother who had died. So he wouldn't carry the name of the biological dad, it would be the brother who died, and all the inheritance that would go to the brother who died would be passed down to this child. Well, Ur was the firstborn, which means there was a birthright, which is a special inheritance. Onan did not want that to happen, had no interest in creating offspring for his dead brother, and so instead, he would enjoy the pleasures of being married to Tamar, but made sure that she never got pregnant by a particular way of birth control. You can read the story for yourself, all right? So then what what happens, the scripture says that Onan was so wicked God took him out. So now, here's Tamar with two dead husbands who've been taken out. Here's Judah who's got two of his, his oldest two sons. They're dead. And rather than acknowledge the wickedness that existed in his kids, he starts thinking, I think Tamar is some kind of freaky black widow girl. Like everyone she marries ends up dead. I think it's her fault. So Judah goes to Tamar and says, listen, you go back home and live as a widow with your father, and then when my youngest son, Shelah, is old enough, then, then you, you can marry him. But the reality is Judah was lying to her. 
Because Judah's thinking if she marries him, he's going to die too. And so I want nothing to do with this girl. So what he literally did was he abandoned her as a widow without a child. A childless widow was the worst condition that a woman could be in in that day and in that culture. There was no one to take care of her. And so Judah just abandoned her. So time goes on. His youngest son becomes old enough to get married and no one calls Tamar and says, take off your widow clothes and put on a wedding gown. It's time to celebrate. Years go by. And she comes to an understanding it's never going to change. She is sentenced because she's still basically engaged to that family. So she can't marry anyone else. Her destiny has been decided by Judah's selfishness as he's abandoned her. Well, here's what happens in the meantime. Judah's wife dies, and after a period of mourning, it says that Judah goes out to a sheep shearing. All right? You know what that means? No, it, I didn't know either until I really dug into this. All right, a sheep shearing in Canaanite culture is like a sales convention in Las Vegas. What happens at the sheep shearing stays at the sheep shearing. Okay? No kidding. It, it, who would have thought that that would be the occasion? But it is a crazy party with lots of wine and lots of women and lots of debauchery. It is just this massive party. Well, word gets to Tamar that Judah is going to Vegas or sheep shearing. So here's what she does. She's dressed as a widow, the particular clothes, mourning. She changes out of those clothes and she dresses like a prostitute. She puts a veil over her face and she goes out and she sits at a place where Judah will pass by as he's going to this sheep shearing. And sure enough, she apparently knew the tendencies of Judah to do this. And sure enough, Judah sees her, propositions her. She says, what will you pay me? He says, I'll give you a goat. Not that great in our day, okay, but in that day, good price. She says, okay, I'll take a goat from the flock. You can send that to me, but I need collateral. He says, what do you want for collateral? She says, I want your seal and its cord, and I want your staff. Now, here's what that is. A seal was a, 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 like a cylinder with, with a signet inscribed that was unique to the owner, so a seal in that day, what it was used for is when there was an agreement, like a document, hot wax would be poured on that document and that seal would be impressed and that was your signature. It identified you, it's how you did business. In our day, it's the equivalent of our driver's license and our credit card. She said, I want that and I want your staff, which would have unique markings that would identify it with Judah. It's insane that Judah would actually give her those things as collateral. So it shows you his state of mind, but he does. He says, okay, fine. And so they transact business, as we say. And she leaves with his seal, its cord, and his staff. And she also leaves with a baby growing in her womb because she got pregnant, which was the plan. She goes back to her father's house, puts her widow clothes back on. The next day, Judah sends his servant with the goat to try to find the, the, the prostitute to get his stuff back, and she's nowhere to be found. Well, it's going to be embarrassing to go public with that, so he doesn't call the police. He just writes it off and goes back home. Well, about three months later, all of a sudden, word gets out that Tamar's pregnant. 
So they go to Judah and say, hey, this girl who's engaged technically to your youngest son has shown up pregnant. And Judah says, this is my way to get rid of this girl. Bring her out and let's burn her at the stake, which was appropriate punishment again in that day and in that culture for what she had done. So they go and get Tamar. Tamar's being led out to her execution, and she sends a message with the seal and the staff and the cord to Judah, and she says, I am pregnant with the child who belongs to whoever owns these items. Do you recognize these? (laughs) And Judah's heart breaks. And Judah actually says, she's more righteous than I am. Righteous can also mean just. She's more just than I am. And there's this humility that sweeps over Judah. So Judah cancels the bonfire. And she gives birth to two little boys. They're twins. One is Perez and the other is Zerah. And Perez is in the ancestral line, the lineage of David, who is in the lineage of Jesus. And when it's listed in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew makes sure to mention Perez's mom, Tamar. Now it's interesting, this whole story, it's crazy, isn't it? It's a crazy story. And honestly, there are a lot of women in the Old Testament that we could talk about today. And I looked at a whole lot of different women in the Old Testament, and I just kept being drawn back to this story. And I guess the reason is what really is our main idea, our main thought for the day, and that is this. No matter the mess we've made of our lives, there's room in God's story for you and for me. And I would say it even this way, no matter the mess others have made of our lives, there's room in God's story for us. See, that's the picture of Tamar, this Canaanite girl who is born to a Canaanite family, this pagan, idolatrous, perverse culture. She didn't choose to be born there. Do you ever go on a trip somewhere in another part of the world to a third world country and you serve on a week or two weeks uh, of a missions trip, a humanitarian project, and you come back to America and the question goes through your mind, why was I born here and not there? You don't choose where you're born. Tamar didn't choose that. She was born into that culture. And then she's put into an arranged marriage with a man who is so wicked that God kills him. Then she's put into a second arranged marriage, again, where she's just used, and a husband who's so wicked, God kills him too, and then she's abandoned by a father-in-law who leaves her in the worst possible condition that she could be in in that day, in that culture, a childless widow. And here's the crazy part about it. All of this happens to her at the hands of the people who were supposed to be a blessing to the world. They were supposed to be the ones who would reflect the one true God of Israel to all the nations, to be light in the darkness. And she finds herself in this place of desperation. And she does the only thing that she knows to do. This poor girl never had a shot. She's never really had a decent shot at life. And yet every time I read Matthew chapter 1 and I see the name Tamar, it reminds me that no matter how broken or how messed up our lives are, there's still room in God's story for people like Tamar 
and people like you and people like me. And I think the reason I'm drawn so much to this story is because it reminds me so much of the people that we encounter as we're journeying this, this planting of a church on the north side of our city. People who have never really had much of a shot at life. From the beginning, the cards were stacked against them, it seems. And one thing after another, people who sometimes, no fault of their own, have all of these things happen to them. People who've been mistreated by those who were supposed to love them and supposed to care for them like parents and spouses and siblings. Even people who were mistreated by people who were supposed to reflect who Jesus is and his love and his care and the kingdom and the values of the kingdom and yet have been mistreated by people who represent Christ, people who've been judged and condemned and pushed to the side and ignored. And yet in all of it, God keeps saying, there's room in my story for you. You know, one of the most beautiful aspects of this story, I think, is that God uses Tamar to break Judah's heart. It's an incredible picture. Tamar brought Judah face to face with his own brokenness in his life. And when Judah came face to face with his own brokenness, his hypocritical judgment was replaced with humility. It's a beautiful thing that happens. It's amazing how self-righteous and judgmental we can be when we don't have a good understanding of our own brokenness in our lives. And when we don't take the time to understand the story that someone has lived. I told you some last time I was with you about a gal who was one of the dancers for a lot of years at the club when it closed down. And when that club closed down, it was very devastating for a lot of the people who worked there. And we had nothing to do with the closing or how it closed. But when it did, they were instantly in one moment out of work. And there was, they were upset and the paper did a big uh, article on it and, and a lot of them were vocal and angry and upset and this gal was one of them. She was very upset. She was quoted in the paper and, and through a course of events we've been able to journey with her in a friendship and she actually is one that we consider a very close friend to our family. She's very good friends with my wife. A couple weeks ago we went and watched her son play football. It was awesome. And there's this great relationship that's developed. In fact, about a month ago on the anniversary of the club closing down, she called my wife and said, a year ago I thought my life was over. Little did I know it was just beginning. Today she's in school and rocking it in school, getting incredible grades. She's working a different job. She's a great mom to her three kids. And her life is being transformed, which is awesome. But I remember, and I shared just briefly with you, the first time I met her sitting at a coffee shop and hearing her unpack her story, which she wrote in a book. And it was a story that began with abuse when she was four years old and continued up into her teenage years. And it led to all sorts of decisions that you can only imagine and more abuse and more pain. And I listened to her life. And I sat there and I thought, how can you even be alive? I don't even know if I could have survived. She's got as much courage as any human I've ever met. And it's so easy to sit back. And, and there were people who did, when the article came out, Christians who would sit with their arms folded and looking down their self-righteous noses saying, how could you possibly take off your clothes in front of strange men in order to make money? But they had no idea of the story 
of a girl who had the odds stacked against her from the very beginning, who never really had a shot. And somewhere along the way, they lost touch with the reality of their own brokenness in their lives. And somehow I think if we can embrace the reality of our own brokenness and recognize that every person has a story, and while that story doesn't necessarily justify behavior, it at least creates a compassion. And it at least puts us in touch with a grace that only God has that says, I still will pick you to be part of my story. I still can do something brand new in your life. No matter the mass we've made, or others have made of our lives. There's room in God's story for us. You know what's awesome about this? I think this moment actually changed the trajectory of the rest of Judah's life. Because if you finish out Genesis, if you look where Judah appears in the future, you see that Judah's back with his family, he's back with his dad, he's back with his brothers, and there's this incredible prophecy given by his father over his life. It, he became a different Judah. And you know who God used to do that? Tamar. This girl who never had a shot. And it changed the rest of Judah's life. See, here's, here's what I think. I'm going to close with this. <laughs> I, I heard not too long ago that um, when, you, when a speaker says to an audience in closing, 65% of the audience re-engages. So welcome back. <laughs> I decided at my church about every five minutes. I'm just going to say in closing. But I'm really going to close. Here's what I think. If you, were, if you were to try to take this story, this story of God, this redemptive story, and try to put it in as simple of terms as you can, I think it might sound something like this. I think all of humanity is broken. Brokenness is common to the human condition. It doesn't matter who you are, how educated you are, how much money you have. None of that matters. It is common to the human condition. When we chose to rebel against God's plan. We're broken. Brokenness became a part of our lives, and we're broken because we strayed from our intended story. There was a story intended for us to live fully human lives the way God created us to live. But we rebelled against that story. Here's the beautiful part, though. This book is about a God in his indescribable love and his amazing grace who relentlessly pursues us to offer us a better story than the one we've chosen. That's what God's up to in our world. Offering us a better story than the story that we've chosen. And we enter that story not through our talents, not through our giftedness or our abilities or our status, our bank accounts, our own righteousness, not because we're good enough, not because we deserve it. We access that story through our brokenness. I just want to pray this morning for people who realize that maybe you are living a story other than the story that God intended for your life. Whatever that means. Maybe you've never known that story that God has for you. You've never given your life to Jesus and walked in relationship with him. Or maybe you have, but you've, you've just kept the, you've kept the pen, so to speak, and you want to write the chapters of your life as opposed to surrendering to the story that God has called you to live. One of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture is the word repentance. 
You know why? Because the word repentance means that we have the hope that we can choose to turn from the story we're living and surrender to a new story in our lives. That's what repentance means. And I want to pray for some of you who need to turn from that story, whatever it is. Maybe it's a story that you're living because you've been beat up your whole life and words have been spoken over you and to you, maybe by the people who were supposed to love you the most. And somehow it's conditioned you to live a certain story. But God says, that's not the story I have for you. For some of you, that story is more like Judah. And you need to embrace the reality of your own brokenness because you've become a self-righteous, judgmental person. Unable to know compassion for the brokenness in other people's lives and the wounds that they've experienced, and how that shaped who they are today. Whatever it is, I want to pray for some of you who this morning need to just turn. That's what repentance means, turn from that story and live this story. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I thank you for the hope that we have, that we are not destined to continue on the path we're on to live the story we're living but you give us the opportunity and empower us to turn from that story and to surrender to you as king and lord over everything in our lives and begin to live the story that you intended for us from the beginning and i pray for people who are making that turn this morning lord for some it's for the first time in their life that they are trusting that what you did in your great love and giving your son Jesus to die as a sacrifice for us was enough to provide forgiveness. God, I pray especially for people who feel like they've messed up too much to ever be loved by you. God, would you let them see that that's impossible? I pray for people whose lives are so tangled right now that they've lost hope, they could ever untangle it. Would you let them see that you are a God of new beginnings? That you can make something beautiful out of the broken pieces in our lives. Help those, oh God, who are, are sensing the conviction of your spirit about their judgmentalism. That, that at the end of the day is really rooted in hypocrisy and pride. Help them turn to live a life of of compassion, not, not, not that ignores truth, but that embraces their own brokenness and that without you, we're all as lost as anyone else. God, we pray that and thank you for loving us where we are. And we thank you that you love us too much to leave us where we are so you transform us to be who you've called us to be. And we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.